Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figili Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine this hour, Somalia prepares for parliamentary elections and Gabon's President Ali Bongo sworn in for a second term. In economics news, South Africa's ruling party Secretary General assures investors and in sports news, Nigeria calls up Spain-based Henry Agbo for World Cup qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The f- former Israeli president and Nobel Peace Prize winner Shimon Peres has died at the age of 93 at a hospital in Tel Aviv. He suffered a stroke two weeks ago. In January, Peres was transported to a hospital following a heart attack. He underwent emergency surgery but had to be readmitted to hospital just over a week later due to an irregular heartbeat. Peres was active in Israeli politics for nearly 70 years and retired in 2014 after serving a seven-year term as the country's ninth president. The president of Seychelles, James Michel, has announced his decision to resign in a televised address. He says after 12 years in office, the time had come to hand over power to a new leader. The island nation's vice president, Denis Ferrer, will assume the office of president for will be sworn in on the 16th of October, the day Michel's resignation will take effect. The United Nations Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights, Kate Gilmore, says security forces in the Democratic Republic of Congo use manifestively excessive and lethal force on crowds gathered in the capital, Kinshasa, last week. 53 people, including 49 civilians, were killed during clashes between government forces and demonstrators. The unrest is related to uncertainty over proposed presidential elections. Justin Sambira reports. Speaking at a meeting of the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Deputy High Commissioner Kate Gilmore said the council had been urged to increase its scrutiny of the human rights situation in the country and to join the call for investigations into alleged violations there. The representative for the DRC clarified that the demonstrations had not been peaceful and that there had been looting and burning of state offices as well as the offices of various political parties. An Islamist militant from Mali has been sentenced to nine years in prison by a UN-backed tribunal for directing attacks against religious and cultural monuments in Timbuktu. Ahmad Al-Faki Al-Mahdi is a former member of the Ansar Dine rebel group. Mali's intellectual and spiritual capital is inscribed on the United Nations World Heritage Site. The International Criminal Court spokesperson, Fadi Al-Abdallah. On 27 September 2016, Trial Chamber 8 of the International Criminal Court unanimously 
found that Ahmad al-Faqih al-Mahdi was guilty beyond reasonable doubt as a co-perpetrator of the war crime consisting in intentionally directing attacks against religious and historic buildings in Timbuktu, Mali in June and July 2012. The chamber sentenced Mr. al-Mahdi to nine years imprisonment. The time spent in detention since his arrest upon the ICC warrant issued on 18 September 2015 will be deducted from the sentence. And finally, Kenya has launched child-friendly tuberculosis medicine, making it the first country in the world to roll out the medicines nationally. Kenya's Ministry of Health says the medicines are easier for caregivers to give and for children to take, and I expect it to help improve treatment and child survival from TB. Sirakimani reports. The treatments are the first to meet the World Health Organization's guidelines for childhood TB treatment. Although they are not new drugs, they are improved formulations that come in correct doses, require fewer pills and are flavored and dissolve in water. Previously, caregivers had to cut or crush multiple beta-testing pills in an attempt to achieve the right doses for children. This made the six-month treatment difficult for children and their families. This, according to medics, contributed to treatment failure and death from the disease. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The upcoming electoral process in Somalia could mark a watershed moment for the country. After several delays, the parliamentary vote now will take place beginning of the 23rd, beginning of October, beginning 23rd October, followed by presidential elections at the end of November. The indirect elections prepare the path for universal elections in 2020. Daniel Dickinson reports. Monumental is how the United Nations is describing political developments in Somalia. The electoral process will bring about various changes, including the election of a new upper house of parliament, based on geography and not on traditional clans. The Electoral College, which selects representatives, will also be broadened from 135 men to more than 14,000 citizens, 30% of whom must be women and 20% youth. Michael Keating is the UN representative in Somalia. The 2016 electoral process is a novel and exciting experience for a country that last held national elections in 1969. It is best described as a political process with electoral features rather than just an election. The electoral model is imperfect. No one is entirely happy with it and that may be a good sign. It is literally extraordinary, a one-off, never to be repeated again. The Horn of Africa country continues to battle the terrorist group Al-Shabaab, which could threaten the elections. African Union troops have been supporting the national forces in driving back the extremists. Francisco Caetano Jose Madeira heads AMISOM, the AU mission that's been in the country for nearly a decade. He spoke via video conference from the capital, Mogadishu. It becomes extremely important that this time the offensive is not only for us to remove Al-Shabaab from its hideouts, 
but we need to effectively occupy the cities and towns that Al-Shabaab is presently occupying so that uh, they do not come back and retake those towns. The AU troops will begin leaving Somalia in late 2018, two years before the country is expected to hold one-person, one-vote elections. But before then, Somalia's foreign minister, Abdul Salam Hadlie Omer, said political hopefuls are working hard to win the hearts and minds of citizens. The Somali people are waiting and ready for this process to complete. The Somali leadership are committed in doing it, and the only game in town is the electoral process. While it has not happened as quickly and as smoothly as we hope, it will happen, and it will happen within the new timeline we have set out. The foreign minister called on the international community to continue to support Somalia in its transition towards democracy and stability. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. Gabon's President Ali Bongo was sworn in for a second term yesterday and called for unity following a razor-thin election victory whose integrity was questioned by international observers. Bongo's victory by less than 6,000 votes has drawn unwelcome scrutiny of the president, whose family has ruled the oil-producing state in Central Africa for 49 years. Opposition leader Zhang Ping said the election was rigged. Moki Kinzaga has more. Gabon's national anthem is listened to by hundreds of Gabonese students gathered at the Central African State Embassy in Yaoundé to watch the inauguration of their president, Ali Bongo Ondimba, broadcast live on Gabon State Television. Among them is 23-year-old University of Chang political anthropology student, Aungbam Emir. He says an aging minority that is not even close to the population to know their needs is confiscating power. He says even though they have the military and money, their authority is weak since they do not have the people's mandate. Ali Bongo's victory in the presidential election of August 27 was confirmed by the Constitutional Court after opposition leader Jean Ping claimed victory. Ali Bongo took over from his father, Omar Bongo, who kept the post for 42 years. The Bongo family has ruled Gabon for 50 years. He is just one of Central Africa's longest-serving leaders. Paul Beer of Cameroon has been president for 34 years. Obiangema of Equatorial Guinea just extended his 37-year rule. And Denis Sasongeso of Congo-Brazzaville is now serving his third seven-year mandate. Charles Idris Deby came to power after ousting President Hisenabre in a 1990 coup. Sociologist Charles Atangana of the University of Yaoundé One says Central Africa has remained one of the poorest and most undemocratic sub-regions in the world because its leaders are only interested in conserving power. 
He says Central African presidents want to be in power for eternity, and the result is that the region remains on the same spot while other economic blocs in the continent are developing. He says only Central African Republic has a leader whose election was not contested because it was coming out of a crisis. Political analyst Professor Ngolengole, also a close aide to Cameroon's president Paul Bia, agrees some of the leaders do not want to leave power and have set up political systems that protect them. Well, generally speaking, it's human nature. We are political animals. When you are in power, naturally, it's normal psychologically that you want to, to keep it. But what determines how short or how long is not your wish, no matter what you wish. Is the political system, does it permit that? Is the culture, does, that, does it permit that? Are uh, the laws, does it permit that? And so forth and so on. Professor Ngolengole adds that some of the leaders have, however, won the heart and admiration of the people. The people sometimes, for whatever reason, for different reasons, tend to show affection and love for their leader. And because they love him for whatever reason, they would like to see him or her stay there. In other places, the, the, the political system and the laws are such that they can either be amended or changed, and that permits for the length of stay to be shortened or to be expanded. It permits uh, for them to stay in power either for a long time or not for a long time. 70% of the population of Central African states is made up of youths between 16 and 35 years, meaning that they have relatively young populations who have known only a leader in their respective countries. They have always been promised a change, as Charles Idris Deby, Cameroon's president Paul Bia, Obiang Gema of Equatorial Guinea, Denis Sasungesu of Congo Brazzaville, and now Ali Bongo Ondimba of Gabon have all done a change youth say is taking so long to come. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Hi, my name is Soli Petwe, General Manager of Channel Africa, the SABC External Radio Service. The 30th September 2016 marks 50 years of Botswana's independence from the United Kingdom. As Botswana celebrates this milestone, Channel Africa would like to join the masses across the world to wish Botswana well in their progress and prosperity. May the glory of your Golden Jubilee celebration be with you forever. Happy Independence Day. Happy Botswana Day. Pula Bahaizu. Let's go back in time to, to today in 1995. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat signed an accord at the White House ending Israel's military occupation of West Bank cities and laying the foundation for a Palestinian state. That was today in history in the year 1995. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Most black-owned companies in South Africa will soon benefit fully from government's broad-based economic empowerment objectives. President Jacob Zuma says government has decided to repeal the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act called the Triple PFA Law. He was addressing the Black Business Council Gala Dinner in Santon, north of Johannesburg, last night. The Triple PFA Law stipulates that when government procures services, it should first consider companies with proven track records, which most black companies do not have. Ndebo Mukobo has more. President Zuma says the struggle for economic inclusion has to happen in earnest, calling on members of the Black Business Council to lead the way. He says for the country's economy to thrive, the majority has to actively participate, not just as mere workers. For any economy to succeed, the majority of the citizens must play a meaningful role beyond being workers. They must participate also as owners, executives and senior managers and also as policymakers in the economy. I think you'll agree with me Whatever countries you have been to, the majority in those countries are in control of the economy. If you're in China, the Chinese are in control of the economy. If you're in India, the Indians are in control of the economy. Wherever you go. But I think the case in South Africa is not the same. The president says government is working flat out to ensure full participation of black people in the economic activities of this country. In 2000, government introduced the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act, but its fiercest critic, the BBC, wants its scrap citing that in its present form, the law would not benefit blacks and will fail to create black industrialists. And President Zuma says government has listened. We are now aware of the shortcomings. We agree that the preference points system prescribed in the triple PFA is rigid and is not responsive to government objectives. Due to the shortcomings, the preferential procurement regulations have failed to substantially reshape the skewed ownership and control of the South African economy. It is the intention of government to ultimately repeal the triple PFA and its associated regulations and introduce a more flexible preferential procurement framework that is responsive to government objectives. He says the new bill replacing the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act is already before relevant government structures before being signed into law. In this regard, the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act will be repealed by the Public Procurement Act. The Public Procurement Bill is now going through the different government stakeholders' engagement processes before it is tabled in Parliament. The CEO of the Black Business Council, Mohale Ralebito, on the other hand, says government has to be biased towards black business people to address the exclusion of black people from the mainstream economy. He says they are not supposed to be having a council of black business people still begging for transformation and economic inclusion under a black government. We should have a minority business council and concerning ourselves with whether that minority enjoys the protection of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, not being worried about whether the majority continues to remain marginalized 
with deliberate attempts to suppress the majority's attempts to take their rightful place in the economy. Meanwhile, the Black Business Council also recognized distinguished business people that include founding members Patrice Mutsepe, Dr. Sam Mutsonyani, the late Don Connors and the first female black chartered accountant Nongkulule Kokobodo, and the first black chartered accountant Professor Weissman Nkutu, among others. I am Tebu Mokobo in Johannesburg. South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress Secretary General Gwede Mandashe, has assured investors that South Africa is stable. He says where there have been problems, the ruling party has been able to overcome them. Mandashe was speaking at the 7th Big Five Investor Annual Conference held in the country's coastal city of Cape Town. There are fears that rating agencies could downgrade the country to junk status in December because of low economic growth and what is viewed as political instability. He says the ANC, as the governing party, never shies away from tackling matters of public interest head-on. From the recent public spat between the Hawks and Finance Minister Pravin Gordon and issues related to the firing of the former Finance Minister Ntlantlanene last year, ANC Secretary General Gwede Mandashe maintained that every time the ANC takes a decision, it does so with investors in mind. Country is stable politically, it is stable economically, it is stable socially. I will talk to those issues a little bit. Um, and any challenges, because there are challenges that are there in our country, as a governing party, we're always ready to deal with them, address them, try to find solutions. And that is the assurance I can give you that the ANC never run for cover when there are challenges. Mandashe also dismissed the talk that there is a discussion about the possible removal of the finance minister. And I think the ANC must be allowed to appoint ministers to any portfolio because it is not the ministers that make the ANC. It is the ANC that produce competent cadres who run portfolios. So that debate is not there. Uh, Praveen is the either waiting whether we're discussing replacement of problems. There's no such a discussion. The defeat at the past local government elections by big margins was also ventilated. At the core of the ANC's poor performance has nothing to do with service delivery issues, but the lack of trust by supporters of the former liberation movement, says Mandashe. These local government elections uh, have sent quite a strong message to us, but the message that we heard is that it is not about service delivery that we lost 8%, but it was more about the trust deficit that has developed over a period of time between ourselves and the base. And that trust deficit is a function of many things, mistakes that we, 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 we've committed. The final remarks by Mantashe was about the current protests by students at various universities. He says certain individuals are hell-bent on a regime change. In these protests, we began to saw elements of what is normally called color revolution. It is called color revolution because it is agitation for discontent, then it takes protests, and it is a, a, a growing trend of regime change. We call it color revolution because we saw it 
in the Rose Revolution in Georgia, in the Pink Revolution in Ukraine, we saw it in the Arab Springs in North Africa and all that. And we say, in this project, there are elements of that. And that was ANC Secretary General Gwede Mandashe ending that report by Abongwe Gobokana in Cape Town. It's 24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1989. Deposed Philippine President Ferdinand E. Marcos died in exile in Hawaii at the age of 72. That was today in history in the year 1989. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Religious leaders of all faiths have a duty to protect believers from bigotry and extremism. That's according to an imam based in Italy who recently visited the United Nations. Imam Yahai Pallavicini from the Italian religious Islamic community was at the UN to participate in a discussion on the indispensable role of religious leaders in preventing atrocity crimes. Extremist groups such as ISIL are increasingly increasingly using religion to recruit young and impressionable followers. Mustafa al-Khamal asked the imam how religious leaders from different backgrounds could work together to combat the rise of religious extremism. Well, it is our responsibility as religious uh, leaders and theologians uh, to protect the truth of our religion and to protect the faith of our believers from this bigotry and this misleading interpretation of religion. And I think that this is not only a challenge for Muslims, it's a challenge for all believers, but it's a challenge also for all citizens, because unfortunately violent extremism is harming two identities, the identity of life, and the identity of religion. So we have to defend life and defend religions. And to do it together between believers and the citizens, it helps. How do you respond to calls for a reformation of Islam? Yes, uh, this has always been the case. The situation of being a Imam Mujaddid was always uh, a correct interpretation of tradition. We need to renewal, have a constant renewal of tradition because tradition is something that is a dynamic spiritual development. So it cannot be something linked to the past and it cannot be something that is a dream for the future. But it has to be linked to the roots of our religion and it has to develop in terms of seeds and flowers and fruits for the future. And to do this in a correct way, we need a new leadership that can link the spiritual religious challenges with the social and philosophical challenges. There has been a number of accusations in the West that some mosques could potentially be spots for radicalization. 
How would you respond to that? First of all, we have to fix the proportion. The great majority of practicing Muslims are wise, simple, and good citizens and good believers. Unfortunately, we have a corruption at different levels in our community, as unfortunately it happened also in history in other religious communities. And we have some uh, ideological, political brainwashing uh, interpretation that is uh, leading to bigotry or is leading to violence. And from time to time, it uses also mosques, but it's mostly in Europe uh, using the Internet. So there are self-made preachers uh, who are preaching in the net and not going to mosques, and they're not going to mosques to pray. What do you think to need to focus on to give more ground to moderate religious leaders such as yourself over radical ones? I think that we have uh, at least uh, two levels or two fields to work on. The first one is doctrine, hmm. which means how religious leaders can read and interpret doctrine. The doctrine has to be something that gives a, a guideline, not a pragmatic, uh, narrow-minded uh, solution. And on the other side, uh, together with other religious leaders, we should probably find concrete fields of working together, where all Jewish and Christian and Muslim, Buddhist and Hindus, we can share our wisdom of the background and try to implement it according to some specific crisis. It could be finance, it could be politics, where the teachings of our masters can be reframed to the contemporary issues in some specific fields and give a contribution as an advisor. So religious leaders should not become politicians, but should be able to advise leaders to take their own responsibility for the good uh, sake and the common good of the citizens. That was Imam Yahya Palavicini from the Italian Religious Islamic Community speaking to UN Radio's Mustafa Al-Khamal. Let's go back in time to today, in the year 1958. Voters in the African country of Guinea overwhelmingly favored independence from France. That was today in history in the year 1958. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. Former Israeli President Shimon Peres has died at the age of 93 at a hospital in Tel Aviv. The president of Seychelles, James Michel, has resigned and Kenya has launched a child-friendly TB medicine, making it the first country in the world to roll out the medicines nationally. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, soul. Africa, Amuka.
Nacional. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Swiss commodity traders accused of deliberately blending toxic fuel and dumping it in West Africa are blaming African governments for failing to invest in refineries and newer vehicles to lower exhaust emissions that cause respiratory and other diseases. The Geneva-based African Refiners Association, representing many traders, says the role of improving fuel quality in Africa clearly rests with African government, not with the fuel suppliers. For more on this, Jose Rodingake spoke to Oliver Klaassen, media director of Swiss NGO Public Eye. They're very dangerous, in fact. I mean, African countries managed to, you know, put the lead out of the fuels that took decades. Now it's about the sulfur. We're talking here about an average uh, for the whole continent, uh, 200 times higher standards of sulfur in fuels, both petrol and uh, diesel, than in Europe or the U.S. or Japan. And in some countries it's up to, uh, you know, it's more than a thousand times higher. So this is what we had here in Europe back in the 70s or something. And we've been suffering heavily from it, and uh, we managed to get rid of it uh, in, you know, whatever it took, 10 to 15 years. We had acid rain discussions and that type of thing, you know, and now it's Africa, and it has been for decades where this stuff is being dumped, causing severe health issues, respiratory issues, you know, you would have uh, diminished life expectancies, et cetera, et cetera. The UN has calculations, more precisely the environmental program of the United Nations, has calculated that back and forth, you know, and has confronted those governments, West African governments, with those numbers, um, to no effect until today. And how have these companies reacted to this report? Well, they, obviously, what they try to do, I mean, we, you have to be crystal clear here, this is not an illegal practice, but it's a practice that we and a lot of people in Europe and America consider illegitimate. There's no way, you know, of profiting the way they do from double standards, from more precisely lower standards in Africa to sell their dirty stuff and to, you know, optimize their margins. So there's an outrage actually um, Mm. in those countries affected by those practices. But there's also an outrage up here that because that business model that's, you know, behind that Provo Koala incident I've been mentioning before has been largely unknown, completely unknown actually, also by politics. So we have different political motions already in Parliament in the Netherlands, one of the biggest export nations with the biggest refinery uh, infrastructures. So more than 50% of the stuff we're talking about comes from that region. And there are a lot of politicians, you know, arguing that that shouldn't be allowed. But, you know, I'm just thinking like a company like Trafigura, they made headlines, like you've said, you know, when a ship had had chartered dumped toxic waste in the Ivory Coast, that was a decade ago. But it seems they continue with these nefarious activities. When are they going to be brought to book? That's a very good question. Trafigura has been noticeably also the company that has been trying to learn the lesson, you know, from the headlines that they've been making in the in the Ivory Coast. So they've been putting, you know, transparency initiatives forward, supporting stuff that others wouldn't. So what we do is we have a petition running online that everybody can go to and express his uneasiness, his or her uneasiness, and ask Mr. Ware, who's the CEO 
of Trafigura to end this practice now and you know, make sure that his company delivers only European standard fuel worldwide to Africa as well as to South America and other places. That was Oliver Klassen, Media Director of Swiss NGO Public Eye, on the line from Bene in Switzerland, speaking to Josejo Dingake. Wits University student leadership is now calling for a general assembly to be held this Thursday involving management, students and parents. They say the assembly will enable university management to hear the grievances of the students and workers as well as concerns from parents firsthand. Yesterday, Wits announced it will conduct a poll to find out whether students and staff want to resume the academic program next week. Nomabulani reports. A student meeting with the Vice-Chancellor was expected to be held on Tuesday afternoon, but Adam Habib was not available. The student leadership says they are now instituting a new plan on how to communicate their demands to management. They'll be collecting data from students as well as workers in order to create a formal document which will highlight the major issues facing the WITS population. The leaders also wanted General Assembly to take place instead of an online poll on whether the academic program should resume. Osisiwe Siyabi says the online poll won't reach the entire student population. We don't believe that the poll is um, genuine. We don't think that a lot of students will be able to participate in the poll because essentially um, it requires a lot of um, resources that many of our students don't have. So essentially we're calling for a student assembly with parents in the Great Hall. We're inviting management as well for them to hear from the students directly that they don't want to go back to, st- to classes on Monday. They don't want to resume the academic program. So we're hoping that we will be able to get a word from management. We're going to be filling up um, the Vitz Great Hall essentially. We're still shutting down next week. Former Vitz students are calling for the current students' protest over fees to end. They fear these protests are tarnishing the reputation of WITS and other universities across the country. WITS spokesperson Sharona Patel. There are three things that Alumba are concerned about. Number one, they want the current protest to stop and they believe that the university and the police should be taking a stronger hand to quell the protest. Secondly, they are condemning the violence which has happened on the WITS campus and on other campuses as well. And thirdly, they are saying that if the protest continues at universities in South Africa, this may in time affect the rankings. The majority of alumni are also coming forward and asking how they can help, and we're asking them just to share their views and opinions on the current situation at WITS. Meanwhile, the family of WITS worker Dilumu Sanduli, who died last week, has told management they would not be speaking to the media. The 39-year-old from Soweto was cleaning Jubilee Hall residence last Tuesday when protesters entered and allegedly released fire extinguishers. He fell ill shortly afterwards. He died a few days later. Patel says the cause of death is yet to be determined. Last week, Tuesday, one of the workers who was in a resident cleaning when students entered the residence were some fire extinguishers. They released the fire extinguishers and he inhaled the fumes. The worker was then treated by the Campus Health and Wellness Centre and was then taken to hospital. He spent three days in hospital and then he was discharged. When he got home, he fell ill again and he passed away on his way to hospital. The worker is an employee of one of our services providers and we are working with the service provider and the family in order to investigate the matter. Down the road at the University of Johannesburg Kingsway campus, students stage a sit-in at the institution's main building. They are part of the Fees Must Fall protest. However, police kept watch over them. UJ management says the gates of the campuses will remain shut as a security measure. I'm Noma Bolani in Johannesburg. Let's go back in time to today in 1976. Muhammad Ali kept his word. 
heavyweight boxing champion with a close his with his world heavyweight boxing championship with a close 15 round decision over Ken Norton at New York's Yankee Stadium that was today in history in the year 1976 Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Former South African Broadcasting Corporation Chief Operations Officer Claudi Mutsuneng has been moved to the position of Group Executive Corporate Affairs. SABC Board Chairperson Professor Mbulaheni Magube made the announcement at a media briefing yesterday. The Supreme Court of Appeal recently dismissed Mutsuneng's application for leave to appeal a ruling that his appointment was irrational. Ditabat Zodeti reports. Mr. Mutsuneng is still our employee. He would be going back to the position he held, uh, which is GE Corporate Affairs. Uh, That is the position he will be holding, and that is his previous position. Uh, He did well for this organization. This announcement by SABC Board Chairperson Mbulaid Magube brings an end to days of speculation over what the public broadcaster planned to do with its former CEO, Shauri Mutsuening. Motsuning remains part of the SABC's group executive and will now be responsible for stakeholder relations in all the nine regions. He says he's excited about his new role. I'm going to turn that uh, position, that unit, to be a very interesting one. That position is very critical. That position deals with the issue of provinces and all our radio stations including news and other units they are in those provinces. I'm going to make sure those provinces, they occupy the space, not Auckland Park. We need to make sure that we assist Imagine Production House. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court of Appeal dismissed with customs on his ability to challenge an earlier ruling that his appointment as a COO was unlawful and irrational. Mutsuning has welcomed the judgment. The reason why I went for disciplinary hearing is because I respect those process and I was cleared. I'm going to apply for the job. It's a given. And I qualify to apply for that job even when you read the judgment. Outgoing public protector Chuglimaran Sela rolled in 2014 in the had lied about his qualifications, paid the senior staff and granted himself a larger salary increase. Maran Sela Sazare will investigate where Mutsuning has the necessary skills and qualifications to perform in his new position and where due process was followed. Maran Sela reiterated that she told the communications minister, Faith Mutambi, that it will be irregular to appoint Mutsuning in another executive position at the SABC after the court found he was improperly appointed as COO. The SABC is currently in the process of reviewing Maran Sela's report on Mutsuning. Maran Sela says that she is concerned about the timing of the review. If there was anything wrong with the report, that should have been indicated up front and it should have been raised with the court. The courts have dealt with this report. If there was anything wrong with this report, the courts would have picked that up and indicated that the findings are flawed. The courts have upheld that he can't be COO based on this report. How do you take the same report on review to the very same court system 
And that process has gone right up to the Supreme Court of Appeal. Last year, the Democratic Alliance applied to the court to have Mosinning's permanent appointment as a services UU set aside. Uh, the Cape Town High Court later ruled in the party's favor. Uh, the DA's Jim Salfay. We think that this is late in the day. It's an abusive process, an abusive taxpayers' money. We uh, are busy consulting our legal team. Uh, we regard the, the matter as being totally unsatisfactory, and particularly the statement that was made today that Mr. Motsuneng is free to apply for the position of COO. Meanwhile, the ANC's Deputy General Secretary, Jesse Juarte, says that the SFC must be more accountable to the rule of law. Juarte was reacting after the announcement that a former SFC COO, Lauri Mutwening, has been appointed as Group Executive of Corporate Affairs. If Mr. Mutwening qualifies for that job where he is now, I have no problem. What we must be very cautious about in South Africa at the moment is to ascribe everything that goes wrong in institutions to the ANC. It is not an ANC decision to appoint anyone into the SABC. The SABC board has the independence to do so, but we are worried that uh, the board needs to be a little bit more concerned about its own uh, allegiance to the rule of law. It is still unclear when acting COO will be appointed. Amdi Dabatsotezi in Johannesburg. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Thanks, Balungile. Zimbabwe's former Vice President Joyce Mujuru is heading to the Constitutional Court to declare illegal government plans to introduce a new local currency. The Reserve Bank says a bond notes equivalent in value to the US dollar will begin circulating by the end of October. Mujuru, who now leads the opposition party Zimbabwe People First, is arguing that the laws do not make provision for a surrogate currency. Kenyan motorists have been handed a two-year relief with the deferment of value-added tax on petroleum products, which pushes forward fuel price increases to September 2018 at the earliest. The Finance Act 2016 a week ago extended the exemption of the 16% tax offering relief to motorists who had feared the new levy would once again push petrol prices above 97 US dollars per litre. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says youth unemployment has become a national emergency which requires businesses, private and public entities to help create job opportunities. He says that the legacy of apartheid is preventing many young people from realizing their dreams. Gordon was speaking at a youth employment conference of the National Planning Commission in Stellenbosch. Youth without jobs and youth without training is not the kind of South Africa we want. Secondly, that this does constitute a national emergency where people who have work opportunities to offer, people who have cooperatives that they can engage these young people in, we have lots of them in South Africa. And that if we organize them in the right kind of way, we will not have young people sitting in despair. South African business leaders also attended the conference. Co-chair of the Government and Business Youth Employment Task Team, Colin Coleman. 
The President on Friday announced a proposal that we working on effectively to put 330,000 youth as interns paid into businesses for on-the-job training each year for three years, so a million interns over a three-year period. Effectively, this will require businesses to put around 3% on average incremental into the private sector. SAB Miller Zambia is set to increase efficiencies at its Zambian breweries Lusaka Brewery with the arrival of a new state-of-the-art bottle labeler valued at 1.7 million US dollars. The machine is the latest demonstration of the investment in Zambia by Zambia Miller, which encompasses Zambian breweries, national breweries and Hendricks Syndicate. Sita Zuma will have a report in the next hour based on that story. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.55 to the South African rand, 10.31 in Botswana, 9.88 in Zambia, 7.7 to the British pound, 8.9 euro, gold $1,325, platinum $1,024 per ounce, brand crude $45.19 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lengwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's rugby news. Springbok assistant coach Matthew Proudfoot refused to respond to the criticism the team and management have received since losing to Argentina, Australia and New Zealand during the Castle Lager Rugby Championship. Proudfoot says the measure of whether he's doing his job or not is through the players and whether they are improving. Criticisms, criticisms. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. You know? um, as, as a coach, you know, I, I look at these guys and they're my, they my measure. You know, if, if I'm contributing to them, uh, making them a better player, making them a better man, you know, contributing to this pack, you know, then, then that's that's what it's about, and they contribute to the team. And I think that's that's how we handle criticism. We we look at ourselves, we're honest with ourselves. We, you know, the first thing we do as coaching staff is look at ourselves, what we could do better, and uh, and then we take that to the team and you know and, and say, well, what could you do better? And, and and that's where the response is. I think that's the criticism that we, we measure ourselves by, and um, because that's the only criticism that can affect our performances. Proud foot says. The team knows what is expected of them now that they have returned home and they feel the responsibility of delivering a big performance at Loftus on Saturday. We had, we had a few days off after getting back from New Zealand and when you get back you realise how special the environment is. Um, Alistair you know, laid down the marker on Sunday night when we got together and, and said that uh, gave us goals for the week. And um, I think if you look at the, the first two days of training, the squad has responded. You know, everybody is, is, is really pushing um, the level of excellence and, 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 and contribution from each each member of the squad, and uh, and that's all we can take care of. You know, everybody is, is here. Everybody is, you know, pushing and, 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 and really motivated for the week. Um, it's a big challenge for us against the Aussies, and, uh, and and that's that's the way we're looking at it. You know, we're back in South Africa, it's you know really great to 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 be home, and you know things are just you know function 
more comfortably for you at home. And, and, and the big thing for us is we feel that um, responsibility of delivering a good performance this week. You know, we, being at Loftus here, it's, it's going to be a big crowd. The guys feel that responsibility and all, all contributing to be, to be part of something good. On to football news. Germany's Borussia Dortmund's Andre Skirle came off the bench to snatch a late goal and earn a deserved point as they twice came from behind to draw 2 all with Champions League holders Real Madrid in a compelling Group F encounter. The Germany international lashed high into the net from close range to level in the 87th minute after Rafael Varane had restored Real's advantage in the 68th. The France's defender goal made up for an earlier slip that allowed Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to cancel out Cristiano Ronaldo's 17th minute opener towards the end of the first half. Dortmund and Real each have four points with the Germans' top on goal difference, while sporting Lisbon are third on the three points after beating Vistas Legia Warsaw 2-0. And Super Eagles of Nigeria's technical advisor, Jeno Draw, has called up Spain-based Henry Uche Agbo for next month's 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier against Zambia. Agbo has been called up as the replacement for defender Leon Balogun, who sustained an injury in his club FSV Mainz Germany Bundesliga game at the weekend. Balogun had been originally named in the 23-man list for the game against Zambia's Chipolo Polo, which will be held at the Levi Mwanawasa Stadium in Dola on the 9th of October. Agbo, who has played in five Granada's six La Liga matches this season, is however yet to be kept by Nigeria at senior level. The 20-year-old defender has already been contacted by Raw and his invitation later sent by the Nigeria Football Federation, the NFF. He will join the other players who are expected to start arriving at the Bolton White Hotel and Apartments in Abuja on Sunday. Finally, with golf news, the Sunshine Tour paid tribute to the passing of legendary golfer Arnold Palmer with a minute of silence during the official pro-am of the Vodacom Origins of Golf Tournament at Saimola Country Estate. Sunshine Tour Chief Executive Selway Nathan says Palmer had a positive impact around the world. Michael Flismas reports. The tourist professionals and the invited amateurs paused during their round at midday while the professionals also wore black ribbons and signed a book of condolence messages that the Sunshine Tour will send to the PGA Tour. Sunshine Tour Chief Executive Selwyn Nathan also reflected on the impact Palmer had around the world. He was a legend, he was generous, he was, he was, he was a fan of every golfer. He really grew the game. He changed the game from just a game of golf to, to something that uh, developed, uh, an army of his was developed. He, was, he had fans all over the world. He was just uh, a different kind of sportsman who, who attracted uh, such a legacy. He was just absolutely amazing. He was a pioneer of the game. Michael Flismas, Samola. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. At the Sawa, Somalia prepares for parliamentary elections. And Gabon's President Ali Bongo sworn in for a second term. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Ludwig Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magaza and Jane Rabutata, 
Technical producer Spiso Mashejo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RajShineAfrica. Now, taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Lena Dembo with a song titled Chitekete.